Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Well, here we are at the end of another week of regulations and guidelines about what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing. And I don't know about you, but I'm certainly becoming increasingly confused about the whole thing, about what is what are the regulations. It's interesting enough, too, that although our own government here in Scotland likes to defend its own independence and doing what it's doing, it's interesting in so many ways we just seem to follow the other parts of the United Kingdom. And perhaps that's how it should be, at least within the one country, there's some degree of unity. But in that confusion, it is complicated, isn't it? And perhaps even in that confusion, many of us are increasingly cautious about what we're being told. And unfortunately, within our wider society, many are becoming increasingly cynical. I was reading an article this week to say, saying of how the number of people who are signing up for websites are anti-vaccine websites. Now, but you didn't realise that they existed. But these are people who believe that vaccines are actually dangerous and perhaps even worse, that they're used or manipulated or controlled by a medical scientific community or by a government in order to have an influence over people for ill. And statistics, and again, we can always argue with statistics, would suggest that up to 20%, a fifth of the population of Britain, would refuse to take a vaccine against COVID-19 in case it turned them either into monkeys or rabid dogs. That in spirit of cautiousness that leads into scepticism and cynicism, I'm afraid to say, is becoming more apparent. And it's hardly surprising after five, nearly six months of all of this, and especially when some who at the beginning argued against lockdown or those now who are arguing most strongly for it, especially within particular communities. Can I read to you something that was in the paper just this very morning, this Saturday morning? The government's own scientific advisory group for emergencies yesterday estimated that the indirect effects of lockdown and pandemic would be responsible for more than 80,000 deaths more than those from COVID-19 itself. And when you hear things like that and read things like that, well, let's be honest, you're left just wondering what's going on. And inside the very same paper was an advert. It says, in periods of uncertainty, you realise what's important. So make your legacy count where it matters most. Now, it is actually an advert for wealth management, but nonetheless, I thought it was a very pertinent advert for the present time. In periods of uncertainty, you realise what's important. So make your legacy count where it matters most. And as I was thinking about that advert, I was thinking, what is going to be the legacy? What is going to be the legacy of the Church of Jesus Christ in our own country out of this time? Will it be a legacy where, unfortunately, as God's people, we seem to be more concerned about ourselves? Frankly, frit, and I use that word quite deliberately, frit over a fever. Or are we going to leave a legacy of where we're confident and solid and stable and standing clear above all that goes on round about us, standing out as a light in the darkness. It's interesting, as we've been reading the book of Acts and the very challenging times that were existing there, we see people standing out from all the melee, from all the political machinations, from all the ebb and flow that was going on round about. We see men and women of God standing out clearly, solid, confident, mature, Not in themselves, not in their own abilities, 
but in the God who had fulfilled his promises in Jesus Christ. And certainly in the early book of Acts, the one who stands out for me personally most is actually Stephen. Here's a young man, full of the Holy Spirit, we were told, as we've been looking in the past weeks, and I encourage you to open your Bibles to Acts, Acts chapter 7, we're going to be looking at this morning. But Acts chapter 6 tells us that they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And when you think about it, Stephen was only a believer for a matter perhaps of months, perhaps of a year at most, not for a long time. He was somebody who had come to faith after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Perhaps he'd been one of that wider group of disciples that went about latterly with Jesus. Perhaps he had been in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover and had heard and witnessed at least something have happened to Jesus. Perhaps he had been there on the day of Pentecost and certainly had heard the disciples who were then the apostles preaching and proclaiming that Christ who had died and risen again. But certainly he was not a believer for a long period of time. He was a young man, we're told, full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And he was the one who became the first martyr of the early church. And last week and over the last couple of Sundays were reflected in the background to that. But if you turn to Acts chapter 7, we don't have time this morning to read through the whole chapter. I would encourage you to do that. In fact, I would argue that this is probably one of the best sermons you can get in the book of Acts. Dare I say, perhaps even clearer than Paul um, in the way that Stephen opens up the Bible, because above everything else, here was a man who used the Bible. Here was a man, obviously, a, a Jewish person in his background and his culture and his knowledge. Here was somebody who used the story of God. And it's knowing the story of God. It's knowing the purposes of God. It's knowing the God who reveals himself through the pages of the Bible that will enable us not to be people filled with fret, but people who are filled with faith. And as he stands, we're told at the end of chapter 6, that as he stood in front of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, all who were standing in the Sanhedrin, 6 and verse 15, looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Here was somebody gloriously confident in God and in God's purposes and in God's word, confident in the sovereignty of God, and in the promises of God. And my friends, that should be our legacy to the coming generations, that we are people who are confident in the sovereignty of God, of his eternal purposes, of his absolute trustworthiness, and of his promises who find their fulfillment, their yes and their amen, in Jesus Christ, the one who is the rock of ages, the one who is the great I am, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we read in chapter 7, the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? And to this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. And then he goes on in a, in a great way, a tremendous way. Please do read it, as it say for yourself. Tremendously, he very concisely goes through the story of the Old Testament and the story of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Joseph, and the God of Moses, and of the people of Israel brought out of Egypt. And he expands on that story. And why does he do that? Well, that's because for Stephen, and indeed for any true believer in Jesus Christ, we should be confident that God has a plan for his people. Notice what he says right at the beginning. God says to Abraham, leave your country and your people and go to the land. I will show you. And from the very beginning, God's purposes was to have a people for himself. His promise given to Abraham that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And through him there would be a, 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 a people 
descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky or the grains in the sand. People who, like Abraham, were told, live by faith and not by sight. And of course, the story of Abraham is that, that he had faith in God's promises and were told that therefore he was counted as righteous before God. Notice what that says, faith in God's promises. That is the key to being right in God's sight. Faith in God's promises and who God is and in what he says. And indeed, as Stephen goes through and opens up this story, he emphasizes that through it all, God kept his promise. Abraham wasn't perfect. Isaac wasn't perfect. Jacob certainly wasn't perfect. Joseph had his good days and his bad days. He was a bit of a, a cheeky so-and-so when he was younger and, 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 and arrogant for it. And yet, through it all, we're told, God taught Joseph much. Look what he says in, in verse 9 of chapter 7. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. And so, therefore, God, even through the ebb and flow of human history, even through the ebb and flow of our own human failures, of our good days and bad days, God kept his promise that he would have his people. And, of course, that supremely was seen in what God did in the time of Egypt. We read in verse 17, As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. Things looked bleak. It looked as if the the the, the persecutions of, of, of this you Pharaoh and of his policies would extinguish the people of God. And yet God kept his promise. We read in verse 33 of chapter 7, the Lord said to Moses, when Moses um, saw God and had the revelation of God in the burning bush, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. And he goes on to say that Moses was sent to be the ruler and deliverer by God himself, the God who through the angel had appeared to him in the bush. And so here, Stephen's saying, here is your history, saying that to the Jewish Sanhedrins, who were sceptical at best, and, and, and certainly very cynical about everything that was being said. And some were already gearing up to oppose um, Stephen and to oppose the gospel that Stephen and his team of apostles and disciples believed in. They, were already, they already had the agenda, they already had the death sentence already written probably, and, and they were just going through the performance of having a trial. But Stephen is confident that the God of the Bible can be trusted because he's kept his promises and his plan for his people. Now we need to hang on to that this morning. It is sad when professing Christians don't know the story of the Bible. We can all fall into the trap of having pet phrases. Unfortunately, so often taken out of context, you often have heard me say that a text without a context is a pretext. And in the church, particularly in the West, we have done that. And we've taken out texts and we've taken out themes which perhaps are in the Bible, but we've taken them and made them into our understanding of how the faith is. 
despite the fact that in the whole counsel of God, they perhaps have a place, but only a place in the bigger scheme of things. But we've elevated that which suits us, or which comforts us, or which feeds into our own sense of narcissism, you know, and all of that, rather than having the whole story of God's Word and using the whole of the Bible to be the means by which we judge what we hear and what we see. We need to know our Bibles. We need to know the story of God from Genesis to Revelation. It's given to us. Indeed, that's the whole point. It's given to us so that we might grow up into the faith and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Stephen was confident of that and of God's plans, and his plan to deliver his people. We've already seen that, that God would rescue his people. He would bring them out. But more than just delivering from Egypt, look at what he goes on to say, verse 37 of chapter 7, or verse 36 rather. Moses led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses, Stephen says, who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he will receive, and he received the living words to pass on to us. God will raise up for you like a prophet like me from your own people. God would deliver his people. He delivered them in Egypt, and through this one who was going to raise up and align a fulfillment of the Mosaic law and of Moses himself, that God will provide a deliverer. Now, of course, during this present time of crisis and challenge, we all look for deliverance, not just from COVID-19, but far from other issues. I've spent this week spending time with the congregation at Knightswood and with the congregation at Bergedi, two small congregations, desperate to know God's hand of leading and guidance, God's deliverance in the midst of the challenges they face. I've spent time in contact and conversation and personally visiting two men, men in their mid to later 30s, who are going in for ministry. Two men who are very gifted and able and who in other times and in other places would have been able to have a church and exercise, I have no doubt, a very fruitful ministry. And yet they're coming out to do that sort of thing at a time when there's great uncertainty, when most churches are shut, and really one does have to question what kind of future they're going to have. I have to be honest. We all look for hope. We all look for deliverance. And we need to hold on to the fact that God is the God who delivers, but perhaps not always in the way we expect or demand or want. This morning, in the, the Saturday morning, in the Saturday morning prayer meeting, um, the reading in the Daily Bread notes that we use for our readings was Psalm 112. Can I read some verses to you from Psalm 112? Praise the Lord, it says. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. Their children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their houses, and their righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness, Light dawns for the upright, for those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad Jews. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Their hearts are secure, for they will have no fear. And in the end, they will look in triumph on their foes. Notice what the psalmist is saying, even in bad news, even in darkness, the light has dawned, the good news has been given. Well, my friends, if that doesn't point to Jesus Christ, the life of life, the light of life, 
the one who is the good news, the gospel, the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, the one in whom all the promises of God find their yes and amen. Our deliverance is in him, in Jesus. And surely this time of challenge is making us do what our brothers and sisters in Christ in far more challenging circumstances have had to do for years. Think of our believing brothers and sisters in Beirut. We support Sat7, a vital Christian ministry into the Middle East, beaming in God's word about Jesus into lands that are locked to missionaries in a traditional sense of the word. A vital ministry. And where does that ministry come from? Well, a lot of it comes from Beirut in Lebanon. How we need to hang on to God's promises. How we need to believe that Jesus will indeed work all things together for our good with those who love him and are called according to their promise. That doesn't mean that everything will be good. That doesn't mean that things will work out the way we expect. That doesn't mean that it's going to necessarily make us feel better at the present time. But God will keep his promises he will deliver his people. And Stephen was confident of that, even as he went on to challenge his hearers. Verse 39 of chapter 7, But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought the sacrifice to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun and moon and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle, Molech, and the star of your god, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. God is not ignorant about our disobedience. He knew his people inside out. Indeed, he knows us even better than we know ourselves. The very hairs of our head are counted and numbered. He sees us when we go out and we come in, when we rise up and we lie down. There's no point trying to pretend. There's no point putting on a facade of faith when in our hearts we're filled with fret, with fear. Because God sees through it all. And indeed, under pressure, as we've said in the past, what really is in the metal of the man or the woman is revealed. The real time of testing, let the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts be a warning to us. He brings out that which is hidden, that which is in the shadows. He brings into the light. That which is put away is brought out and revealed to all. God sees his people. God is not ignorant of our disobedience. And through this time, surely he is challenging us. We have so easily fallen to the trap, perhaps not of worshipping at the tabernacle of Molech or the star of our God, Rephan, but we have sought to fashion the gospel, even the God that we profess to believe in, into a way that fits into our hands and suits our life and our lifestyle. 
That's why, of course, Stephen goes on to challenge. Um, he talks about David wanting to build a tabernacle for the Lord in verse 47, but it was Solomon who built a house. And he goes on to say in verse 48, Moreover, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet Isaiah says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my, God, my hand made all things? He quotes from the prophet Isaiah. Now, there was nothing wrong with the tab tabernacle. Indeed, we're told in, in Kings when Solomon dedicated the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord came down. There was nothing wrong with the tabernacle itself. But we should know enough of Israel's story to know that very quickly Israel turned to see, well, God's in his temple. We'll keep him there. Yes, we'll do the sacrifices. Yes, we'll pay for the priests. Yes, we'll have all the rituals of religion. We'll hold to that, but we'll deny its power. We'll go outside and we'll just carry on living because God's ignorant. And of course, the prophets in the Old Testament challenge that. The prophet of Micah, bring all your sacrifices as much as you like. But what I really want is a heart-changed relationship with you, between me and you, and you and others. God sees through all of that. And perhaps this time is challenging us. Perhaps, perhaps we can't meet in the church in the same way. We can't keep God confined within a safe place. And we have to reckon with him in the whole of our life, in the totality of our emotions, in the widespread of the circumstances we face. We're having to face up to a very real God, a very real world, and the challenge of what is, what really constitutes a very real faith in him. And lastly, Stephen, bless him, you know, the book How to Win Friends and Influence People. Well, I don't think Stephen had particularly read that. Um, he knew the story of God. He knew the story of God's dealings with the people. And he certainly wasn't a people pleaser, unlike some within the church, the wider church, I don't mean our own church or within our own denomination, who are happy to roll over and allow the state or whoever to tickle the tummy and become a pet poodle of those who are in human power. Stephen wasn't like that. Look at what he says in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Well, Stephen certainly goes for the jugular, doesn't he? He, he, he takes the example of God's word and he says, and this applies to you, you people sitting here in judgment of me, you people who'd sat in judgment of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the one who God had promised through Moses would be fulfillment of his promise. There's no coincidence why in the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses, along with Elijah, were seen to be beside Christ. Moses, the lawgiver, Elijah, the supreme prophet, all pointing towards the one that God had said he would bring. You have heard that story, Stephen says to these people, and yet you're stiff-necked. Indeed, you're simply being like what your ancestors were like. You react, you resist, you rebel against the reality of God because it challenges at the very depths of your being who you are and what's important to you. They resist the Holy Spirit. And that, of course, is the ultimate sin. To sin against the Holy Spirit. To see and to hear that which is right and true and honorable and just. And to say it's wrong. It's a lie. It's, it's, it's not reliable. It's, 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 it's not something that can be used for the basis of life. 
And interesting enough, as God's word tells us, judgment begins with the house of God. It's very easy for us, isn't it, to point to this person or that person and to say, oh, look at them, look what they do, look what they say, look whatever. But actually, God's word primarily is applied to his people. And that's what's being said here. The challenge of it, the light that pierces into the shadows, the truth that, like the scalpel of the surgeon, pierces into the wounded and sick malaise of our souls. That is what Stephen is saying but not just to those who were gathered in the Sanhedrin nearly 2,000 years ago. That is God's word to us and to our church, the church, today. We've heard the truth. We have received not just the law. We have received the truth of God revealed in Jesus Christ, that eternal word. We have seen ample testimony of how God keeps his promises, of how God has a plan for his people, and of how God is not ignorant of our disobedience, and yet we still turn the deaf ear. What is going to be our legacy? What is that inheritance we're going to bequest to coming generations? For Stephen, of course, it was the glory of God that he looked forward to. As we close, verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. For Stephen, confident of God's promises, he saw a glimpse, of course, of what John himself saw in, on the island of Pentecost, the island of Patmos, on that Lord's Day, many years perhaps later, when we read in Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away and he who was seated on the throne said I am making everything new then he said write these down for these words are trustworthy and true and he said to me it is done I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life to those who are victorious they will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Stephen saw that, you heaven and ye have. He saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He saw that eternal fulfillment of God's promises, and that enabled him to stand in the face of his enemies and be a bold and clear and confident witness to Jesus Christ. He saw all of that. We see Jesus. And my friends, that is what we desperately need to see today. Notice the challenge. But before it gets on to the magic arts and the idolaters and all the liars being consigned to the fire pit, the cowardly and the unbelieving. Let's not be cowardly. Let's not be unbelieving. Let's have confidence in God and his promises. Let's give 
to the young families and the children in our church and the coming generations a legacy that counts where it matters most, a legacy of confidence, not in ourselves, but in the God who keeps his word, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for the confidence that it would seek to create within our lives and within our hearts. We thank you for its challenge, the way it opens up and reveals things, perhaps about ourselves and certainly about the state of the church, which is far from pleasing to you. We ask that in your mercy, but also in your sovereign power, you will refine and renew your people, we pray, in this day and in this generation. Raise up a legacy of men and women who love you, who are confident in you, and who are filled with faith, not fear. And so by your Spirit, take your word and apply it to our lives. Open us up to your truth, we pray, and transform us by your amazing grace and love, all for the glory and honour of Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon.